Hello, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. And it is, uh, I don't know, what day is it? Is it Tuesday? And I'm here in the back house with our beloved Robcast friend, Alexander Shia. Welcome, Alexander. Hi, Rob. This is great to be here. You, um, this is like your fourth or fifth time you've come by. Something like that. And what's interesting yeah, is right. people always, when you, when when I get to talk with you, people are always like, that blew my mind. <laughs> um, and one of the things I've, I have learned over the years is when somebody has deeply moved me and it's almost like they, they, are, they are hearing a song that I want to hear. Um, I have learned that inevitably, if you begin asking them about where they've been and what they've encountered, they will tell stories about suffering. There's only a way that there's only one way that you get there, um, and so you and I have this friendship outside of these Robcast interviews, and so I've heard your story, but then um, I think after the last interview, you said, you know, I really should tell my story sometime. So, so well, we're, we're going to do we, that. We had this conversation after the really horrible days in Orlando last June. Yes, yes, yes. And um, so for those of you who haven't heard the other podcasts with Alexander, Alexander is a trained anthropologist. He's the author of a book called Heart and Mind, a seminal work on what it means to understand that your life is unfolding as a story and that there are four central questions to that story. And his contributions at a scholarly level, but for many of us, just at a how do you live? How do you, how do you be fully alive? Um, so, and Alexander travels all over the world, and he's a spiritual guide to many, but you have not told some of the story you're going to tell us. You haven't told this publicly until now. <laughs> Friends, family, small yeah. settings, but no, yeah. this is... <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fantastic, because I, I think for many people... When I hear somebody tell about where they've been and I hear what really happened, not all of their great wisdom and insights, but what led them to this, it always gives me so much hope with my own pain and obstacles and such. So you grew up in Alabama. Yes. The part the of a... son of immigrants. Immigrants who came from Lebanon. Right. And what was life like? This was Alabama in the 60s? This is Alabama in the 50s, thank you. Al <laughs> Alabama in the 50s yes. as the son of Lebanese immigrants. Lebanese Catholic immigrants. So I grew up knowing that I was colored. And I know that that may be hard for other people to understand, but the word colored in Birmingham meant not just the African-American community. Uh, it meant people from the Mediterranean, particularly people from the Mediterranean that were Catholic uh, and had darker skin. So it was back of the bus. Uh, couldn't There were certain water fountains that couldn't be used. Uh, certain libraries that you couldn't go into, or amusement parks, or state fairs, on and on and on. Wow. And was there a large 
Lebanese population in Birmingham? There, there was, there is, uh, and uh, a number of Lebanese villages sent uh, almost sent at least one representative from every family uh, to the states, and they ended up in Birmingham because in the early 1900s, Birmingham was a city of economic opportunity, and then. Uh, and that continued through World War I because of the steel industry in Birmingham. And then after World War I, there was a, uh, an economic crash, a bust, as uh, the armament for war was no longer needed. And in my understanding of the history of Birmingham, the industrial barons, the white industrial barons, looked out over the city of immigrants and went, oh my, we've got a problem. And what happened is, is they sort of gave the golden handshake to the KKK. And the KKK came in and unofficially, officially governed Birmingham from the 1920s, really, until the early 1960s. And each one of us, each, of, each immigrant group, which were part of the colored class, uh, had a particular area of Birmingham where we lived. And it was... Uh, not acceptable for you to live outside of those areas. So I grew, I was born after World War II, and I would say that Birmingham was a peaceful city through World War II, as long as you stayed within the lines. And my, my brothers and I have a very different experience of Birmingham. Uh, they grew up in, in Alabama in the 30s and the 40s. I grew up in the 50s, and in the 50s, as people came back from World War II, uh, as black soldiers came back from World War II with respect and dignity, they're not going to put up with this stuff anymore. That was, that's the genesis of the civil rights movement in the late 40s and the 1950s, were, was this sense of integrity and respect which the soldiers had found during World War II. So Birmingham becomes a very ugly place in the 1950s, as Fermworth is happening at every level, and not just the black community. So we've talked in the past, and I opened the book Heart and Mind by telling the story of uh, what we assume is the KKK burning down my grandmother's house in Birmingham, Alabama in 1958. And they did this why? <clears throat> uh, they did it, we believe, because my mother's family had grocery stores, and those grocery stores were in the black neighborhood. And the KKK wanted them to raise their prices. They wanted them to, you know, if you, just as an example, if a can of soup is a dollar in the white grocery stores. They wanted that can of soup to be two or three dollars in the black grocery stores. So it was the sense of if we can take money away from the black community, we can keep them oppressed. We and they'll have to work longer hours. They have to work longer hours exactly. And my family was resisting that. My mother's family was resisting that, and so they decided to terrorize. Were you there when the how, did you race over to the house? Did yeah, you get I I was seven years old, and I had already gone to bed. And what I remember is that suddenly my mother and father come and they scooped me up on a blanket, backseat of the car, and we raced over to uh, to my grandmother. My sit though, my 
It's the Arabic word for grandmother, my Sitho's house. And when we got there, the house was totally engulfed in flames. It's an old, simple wooden house. And we didn't know where my Sitho was. So we stood there for over an hour believing that most likely we were not only seeing the house burn, but also my grandmother's funeral pyre. Now, fortunately, what had happened is, is that a friend, a neighbor, unknownst to the family, had dropped by uh, early in the evening. It was a beautiful May, spring May evening, and picked my grandmother up and taken her to church. And she wasn't in the house. She wasn't in the house. I remember you telling me the next Sunday you would gather for lunch and what she said to everybody. Right. We were at my, uh, I believe, my aunt and uncle's home in the basement on uh, tables made of wooden planks and Charlie horses. And my grandmother says grace, as she always did, as she was in the center of the room and all the rest of us were around. And she said grace. And you, you knew that you didn't reach for your fork until my grandmother uh, had completed grace. But when she completed grace, she started looking around the room uh, at each one of us, just catching our eyes for a moment. And she went person to person to person to person. And then she just very simply said, no hate, no hate, no hate. And then she picked up her fork. And in that moment, she changed our family. She changed the tenor of the conversation, and she changed the despair and the bitterness into, uh, into a hope and a, and a moving forward. And I remember, in the way that a seven-year-old can remember in that moment, I wanted to know how to do that, that that was something about my path, was to learn how my sitho had, where does that strength come from? Uh, she had just lost her husband to a heart attack. And now she had lost the house and all the pictures and all the mementos that she had brought from Lebanon. And she never went back to Lebanon once she came to the States. So her whole history was gone. And her only concern was for us. Oh, no hate. No hate. No hate. No hate. Oh. So... Then you, uh, then eventually you graduate and go to Notre Dame. Yeah, and I probably should just back the story up a little bit. My name is Alexander. And that name came, uh, this is, this is I, I grew up in the old ways. Even though I grew up in the industrial American South, I grew up as if I was living in a Lebanese village. Uh, when I was born, uh, my parents had not picked out the name yet. And my father looked at me and my father said, he's Alexander. Now, Alexander in my family is the name that's given to the next priest. My father's family, my father's mother's family name is Al-Huri, which means the priest. And through my father, I am part of the line of Maronite Catholic priests in our mountain village in Lebanon. And the next generation, the son so, or, so ordained, literally so ordained at birth to be the next priest, is given the name Alexander. And so I was with the full expectation that this would be my life path. 
Oh, and, and you carried that. You knew that. I carried that, and it fit me. To a point, it fit me. This was... Uh, the, the, the challenge later is, is that my father and I had a different, ultimately had a different understanding of priesthood. But yes, I, I grew up with a love of spiritual things, a love of religious things. Uh, um, you know, a three-hour church service, I was there. And uh, so I grew up expecting to be a priest and knowing that that was exactly what the family wanted me, or, or, or that's how the family knew me, mm-hmm. was as a priest. So I, I, it was a very odd thing, because as I go through high school, I'm not dating, and I wasn't having any desire to date, and I was thinking of that at that point, that, well, of course, that's because I'm, you know, I've been given, quote-unquote, the gift of celibacy, because, that, because I'm on my way to being a priest. But I had the great, I don't a, a grace in my life was for some reason I knew that though I was going to go to seminary, that I wanted to go to university first. I didn't, my father really wanted me to go to seminary as soon as high school was finished. And we sort of battled. And I stood my ground and he gave way. And he agreed, I, I was thinking Ivy League, West Coast, um, we finally negotiated on Notre Dame. I ended up going to Notre Dame because that was as far away from Alabama as my father was willing for me to go, and also because it was Catholic. He thought, well, okay, he's going to go to a Catholic university, and then he's going to go on to seminary. Notre Dame blew my mind at every level, and I am so grateful that almost everything that I do all the formative teachers I had, the formative experiences I had, come from my four years at Notre Dame. Really? You trace it all back there? This is where you studied with Joseph Campbell? It is. Was, and did you know he was Joseph Campbell then? No, it was like before. It was, you know, who's he was just, just a professor. He was just, he was this, he, Not he the was legend this interesting sort of guy who came to teach at Notre Dame for two weeks every springtime. And you had to be an upperclassman to get into these seminar lectures that he was doing. So it was not until my junior year that I had the chance to, to be part of these, these two-week seminars with him. Was he blowing minds then? He, uh, yes. I mean, this is like 1972, 1973, and he's opening Scripture as great myth. And yeah, it's blowing. It's blowing my mind. I... I'd, what Joseph gave me more than his words was an energy and, and an attitude. What was the, how would you summarize the energy and attitude? Uh, he, he, he had this tremendous childlike curiosity about life. Yeah, it's always that was, curiosity, That was the energy. And then his attitude was, is that stories are very, very important but there's a story underneath the story, which is the seed from which the story grows. And until you understand the seed, you don't really know the story. Can you give me an example? Well, uh, so we're, we're, we're going to look at uh, uh, the story of where the two come to their father. It's a, a Native American myth. 
and it's about these two guys that go off in search of their father, etc. Uh, the story underneath is the story about what a what a man must do to be, uh, what a boy must do to become a man, and how for a boy to become a man, he has to. Um, what's the word I want to use? Um, he has to, in, in some ways, significantly disappoint his parents. Oh, that's a whole story right there. It is. So Campbell was opening up uh, Old Testament, New Testament, Hebrew, Christian scriptures, and taking us down to the seed, and showing how at the seed, uh, the, the Christian story is a universal story. It's not about the particularity of a holy person in Israel, but the particularity of this holy person is the universal story of all of us. Yes, yes. These details about that time and place are about all of us yes, everywhere. Yes. Their story is our story. Yes. And the and moment it becomes this thing over and against or better than or triumphing over this, you've missed the point. In that story, if you go deep enough, you find the whole story. Yes. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Come on. And so suddenly, what Campbell does for me is Campbell explodes Scripture. He, he, he both deeply affirms my love of the stories in the Bible, but he explodes Scripture into all the world's great mythologies, which I can then bring back as a way to more deeply understand the stories of the Bible. Yes. So that the stories in the Bible become even more true, yes. e- even more uh, powerful, alive, alive, and 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 continuing and continuing and what's happening to you and so you're at college what's happening to you personally well um so campbell's work comes in my life when i'm a junior and a senior but when i was a freshman i i had a uh the probably the largest psychological challenge i've ever, ever had in my life and I, these were the days that notre dame was still all-male. So my first two years at Notre Dame, Notre Dame is an all-male university. And whereas I had gone through my high school years sort of being sexually shut down uh, and thinking that this was celibacy, um, I get to Notre Dame and my professors are opening up my world through uh, through reading great literature, and, and I am forever grateful to a freshman theology professor. And everyone at Notre Dame had to take freshman theology, and it was a great books course. And we read literature and had to write theological reflections on literature. So I'm reading Narcissus and Goldman by Herman Hesse. And there is something in the environment of all-male Notre Dame and this book, and I find myself writing a paper about homoeroticism, about the spirituality of homoeroticism. And that began to eventually open up over the next year into my discovery that I'm gay. But I was so blessed at Notre Dame to have professors who allowed that exploration and who affirmed it. And uh, by my sophomore year, I had befriended, or actually uh, Morton Kelsey had befriended me, and 
had taken me as a sort of an adopted son into, into his professor. family. It's a professor, a theologian. Um, and he was, he was the one through whom Joseph Campbell was invited to come and speak at Notre Dame. Uh, Morton Kelsey was a, 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 an Episcopal priest who was exploring Jungian psychology as a metaphor for theological thought. And, Whoa. <laughs> and Morton is the first person that I told that, that, uh, that I actually sat down and told that I thought that I might be gay. And how did he Mort respond? He just, it was, it was just sort of great. What's next? What would in, happen in that moment if he would have shut you down? Oh God. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, it, years and years of guilt and shame and, and it would have uh, been devastating. It, yes. Because here was here was a priest, uh, a well-known theologian on campus, and who also developed a, a wide following across the United States, at least. And I idolized him. So his ability to just sort of just it was just the most natural non-story. Oh yeah, yeah, right. He was just like, yeah, that's who you are. Okay. Okay. Now yeah, what are we going to do? Yeah. Let's go do whatever we're here to do. Exactly. Wow. So you, and, um, but you don't tell your family. No, no, no. That doesn't come for much later. Then you leave Notre Dame and you go to seminary? I graduated from Notre Dame and I go on to seminary in Washington, D.C. And with a lot of fanfare and excitement. I mean, I had gotten the most creative, fulfilling theology at Notre Dame, this personal exploration of who you are, this mythic understanding of life through Joseph Campbell. And what I also had really come to understand through Jung and Campbell and Kelsey and, and everything with, is that myth is the, is the, is the fundamental story but you are obligated to live it forward. Only you can write the ending of the myth for you. That you can read all the world's great mythologies and they sort of tell you the collective starting point. But you've got to take that collective starting point and make it original. You're going to write this in a way that no one else ever has or ever will or ever could. So I head off to seminary with this excitement about, about this new form, this, this new Alexander who is going to move out into the world and discover himself. And I get to seminary, and it's, it's a pretty painful place. It's a pretty shut-down place. It's a place where here's the question, Here's the answer, dot the I. And I just, I started um, feeling paralyzed and constricted. And I really, I felt like somebody had strapped me in an insane asylum. Uh, and I was going nuts. And I started having nightmares. And already through my Notre Dame years, I was tracking my dreams and I don't have nightmares. And I was having nightmares. And I was getting suicidal. 
and there was a lot of acting out in seminary and I as I have heard other people tell the story fairly common experience um, so I'd be sitting at dinner table with the rest of the seminarians and there would be like terrible terrible fag jokes being shared and then after 10 o'clock when it was lights out um, then you hear the doors opening and the beds creaking and and it's just like I'm I'm in this horror uh, of um, I don't know the word but it, for me it felt very inauthentic and it lacked integrity for me and ye, and and you are struggling with just ending it all I, I'm struggling with ending it all and then I had a dream um, after a long series of of very, very painful nightmares. I have this dream, and I'm standing in the most incredibly beautiful cathedral I've ever seen. I'm just absolutely blissed out standing in this cathedral. And I feel an earthquake start. And the roof and the floor start to tremble. And I, and I hear this voice in the way that you do in a dream stand here. And so I stood there, rather than my, my inclination was to run, but I stood there. And the, the roof came down, the pillars fell, they fell in front of me, they fell behind me, they fell inside of me, and I was covered with dust, but I was untouched. And then I looked up, and where the cathedral had been, was the most magnificent night sky. And I knew after that dream that the form of church that I was being prepared to serve was too small, too constricted. Uh, that that form, at that point in my life, I just knew that that form for me had to come tumbling down. I think today I can say that I think that that form for many has to come tumbling down. Yeah. That there, there's, a, there's a larger reality, uh, an incredibly alive cosmic reality which is waiting us. The whole thing is a temple. Yeah. Everything is spiritual. Uh, <laughs> well said. And you... You have this dream, and do you make like life decisions based on this dream? I make life decisions based on this dream. And I go into the rector of the seminary and tell him that I'm leaving, shaking, totally shaking. Uh, I've always appreciated that image uh, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I think it's Prince Edward who says that courage is doing what you must with your knee shaking. Because um, I knew that in leaving seminary that I was going to deeply disappoint my family and especially my father. And I did not know how what to expect from, from my father at this point. I think it's fascinating how many people 
there's a move they need to make to be true to who they are and what they're here to do, how often it involves disappointing someone. And the reason why people don't, and years later, wonder why they're stuck or why their life isn't everything they wanted it to be, but they can trace back there were key moments when they were too scared of disappointing someone, so they stayed. I mean, if I had stayed in seminary, I would have become a very, very um, inauthentic priest, and I would have... I don't know whether it would have been drug abuse or, or alcohol, or but something not very good would have happened to me. So you go back to Birmingham then? Uh, I wandered for a few months, getting up the courage to go back and face my father. Where did your family think you were in those months? Well, I mean, I actually went back and, and hung out at, at Notre Dame with friends and uh, spent a lot of time talking to Morton. And, but by, by Thanksgiving, I headed back to Birmingham to face the music. Alexander, the family priest, comes home having dropped out of seminary. And and what's that? Are you terrified going home? I'm totally terrified. I mean, it was only the sense that I was doing this. I mean, it was it was it was a life and death decision. Stay in stay in seminary, and I was going to kill myself one way or the other, even if it was the psychological killing myself. And it took that level of pain to realize that I had to live my life even though I didn't know what the consequences were going to be with my family. So sometimes when, when you see people who something's not right and they have to make a change and they're like, well, this is at least, I mean, this isn't really, this, this isn't life and death. You're like, no, it is life and death. Yeah. This thing that you don't think is that important actually is life or death. It is. It was for me. <laughs> Oh, and you go home. And I go home, and it's not, it's not pleasant. Um, and I, I realize that, I mean, at this point, I don't tell my father everything of the story. Um, I just told him that, that seminary was killing me. And I, that it was... That, and, and at that point, it was that that seminary was not going to be my way. I was still holding out the hope that there might be a better seminary out there somewhere. And so what do you do? Well, but also, um, throughout, this in, throughout my Notre Dame years and throughout seminary, um, I had been totally committed to the idea of celibacy. But now, um, I'm in my 20s, and I've never, had, uh, I've never had a date. I've never had an experience with another person. And I just, I just know that I've got to walk into a gay bar. It is the most, it's the second most scariest thing I've ever done in my life. So I, at that point in time, there was a a gay bar in Birmingham that was called The Torch. What year is this? Uh, 1974. And what is the public perception at that time of the gay community? There might be pockets of acceptance in some of the larger cities. In in Birmingham, Alabama, it's an anathema. You, You are a total pariah. 
And it was regularly in those days that the police would come into the bars, um, pick people up, take them down, book them, and put their name in the newspaper the next morning. And you were shamed in front of the whole community. It was an uh, my, issue of being arrested and put in jail. Put, ar arrested and booked. Uh, and, your, and your name put out as having been arrested in a gay bar. And you start, and you walk in for the first time. Well, I, I went down and walked around the block. I don't know how many nights I did this before. I mean, and even the, and the night that I remembered I finally walking into the bar, I walked around the block you know, four times, five times, six times, just getting up the courage um, to walk inside. And then you do. And I did. And it's really, it's really an odd story because uh, that particular night, uh, there was an earthquake in Birmingham. And uh, I didn't feel it. <laughs> I was inside the bar. I don't know. The disco music was going or whatever. But uh, the next morning, my father asked me where I was during the earthquake. Oh, earthquake? There was a personal earthquake going on. And... So then, then do you develop? Do you have some area of study or something you want to do with your life at this point? I, I know that I leaving seminary did not mean that I was not deeply interested in the spiritual life and wanting to be a servant of it in some way. So I, I've got this this tension between. Uh, the authenticity of me, uh, which has led me to all of these discoveries, um, and the conflict with my tradition, the Roman Catholic Church at this point, which is saying, this is totally unacceptable. Uh, and I mean, actually, the kinder voice is that this is unacceptable. The, the, the less kinder voice is you're damned and going to hell. But again, thankfully, because of my professors at Notre Dame, I had this unshakable sense of my goodness. And even to the point where my tradition was saying something different, I had the gift to know that this form of the institution was not its best face. It was not its deepest wisdom. Uh, Notre Dame had given me a that's look. A great, by the way, that's a great line. This face of this institution is not its deepest wisdom. No, it's not. It's a very sad corruption of a deep stream that it holds. That's a good. That's a good line for anybody in any institution that's driving them crazy. But I, I've had the great good fortune to know the wisdom stream and to count on it and to be able to lean back on it. Say more about that. How, when you say the wisdom tradition. Well, because of what I was given at, at Notre Dame, the, we had this beautiful moment in the theology department at, at Notre Dame where many of the professors were going every summer to, to Zurich and they were studying at the Jung Institute. And they were coming back, and whether it was liturgy or moral theology or uh, systematic 
whatever it was, it was all being taught through a Jungian lens. Can, for people who don't know what that is, how would you break that down? Uh, Carl Jung was the great psychologist who showed that there's an, there's an inner truth by which each person lives, but that inner truth is, collect, is, is connected to the deep wisdom that's in the cosmos and in the earth and in all. So one of his great contributions was you are not this autonomous, independent living unit just cut adrift, mm-hmm. which the modern world has a thousand ways of communicating that very truth to us, but that is not reality. Reality is that you are enmeshed in a, in a whole world of, in a web of meaning and wisdom and truth and beauty. Right. And that and present that, that within your one, very being. And each one of us is born with a gift, or you might even say a mission. And your authenticity is going to be about living that out in an original way. And so it's not going and finding some external thing that's somewhere in the world you have to go and discover. It's about listening to that which has been present within you the whole time. Yeah. Which is just a fundamentally different posture to life. Yeah. Ah. Uh, yeah. Seriously, raise your glasses. So good. So, so, so you were influenced by people who were going and studying with, with you in Europe. Yes. And they're coming back with these sorts of insights, which is... Ha- which I'm always fascinated with how ideas just change, can change everything. Yeah. There are these key yeah. moments in life where somebody hands you this idea or you're exposed to it or you stumble upon it or you read it or you, you hear it on a podcast and all of a sudden nothing is the same again. Nothing. And so and- your, your gay in Birmingham, which is like an ill... I mean, it has legal... Um, I mean, I just, when I think about like people saying, you know, this, my path, you know, I have some challenges. That's a challenge. Like being true to yourself has legal implications. I mean, I'm, I'm so happy and delighted that gay, lesbian, LBGTQ people today don't have to live the story that some of us had to live in much, in just a few decades ago. Uh, I mean, at this point in the 70s, they're not role models. Nobody is talking about this. You don't see this on television. They're not movies um, that, are, that are showing uh, our community in, in a healthful light. Uh, there are very few books written. So it, today is, is, is really the, the beautiful flower of What's happened in our world in the last four in the last four decades? Now, to somebody who, with the election of Donald Trump to the presidency of America, which still is, is an odd sentence to say, surreal. Um, I know for many people, election night was: Am I going to be safe? Am I going to be harmed? Um, can I stay here? What, what, what do you say to those folks who this past couple months has raised all those questions of safety and protection and rights? And What do I say? Um, we are going to be okay. Each one of us is going to be okay if we do our inner work. 
Um, our sense of being okay should never be defined by somebody else. And the Spirit, God, is profoundly with us. And for those of you who know my work on the four Gospels as the four spiritual paths, um, the second path, the path of Mark, the path of, of great trial and suffering and obstacles is absolutely necessary for the flowering of our authenticity. So I can't say that this is going to be a moment without pain, but I can say this is going to be a moment that is going to have great beauty and great gift. You can't say it will be without pain, but the pain will always be an invitation. If pain is an invitation. And in, in, in my work, I, of late, I've been talking a, a great deal about holy darkness and about the, the gift of radiance that comes out of the dark. And if you'll notice my language, um, I don't talk about the light very much because the light is too much a product, a stasis. What I talk about is radiance because radiance moves. And uh, there is a place in the deepest dark where the new radiance bursts forth afresh. And I can promise all of us that it's, that's, that's the truth of the universe. It's the truth of Christian spirituality. It, it is going to be there. It's going to happen. I can't tell you when or the day. But I know that we're going to be okay. And I know we've got a tremendous amount of work to do. Just on the way over here, as I was in the, the taxi coming across over this morning, and the, the cab driver had the news on, and I, just, I, I, just, I had this moment of profound shudder hearing this morning's news. We're going to be okay. It's going to be painful, and we're going to be okay. So, that's so well said. So let's, let's um, I want to go back to you and your dad. What, what does it, what happens then? You're now mid, late 20s? Mid 20s. And your dad finds out you're gay at some point? Um, I moved to New Orleans. As I kept thinking, if I could live anywhere in the South, I could live in New Orleans. And while I'm there, uh, I meet my first partner. His first name is Lawrence. And Lawrence and I are together for 12 years. And uh, I, what I decided to do was to give my parents all the information uh, until they would ask the question. I kept thinking, if, if they can ask the question, they'll be ready to hear the answer. So uh, my parents came and visited Lawrence and I in New Orleans and stayed in our one-bedroom home. We gave them our home. We slept on the, on the hide-a-bed in the, in, the, in the front room. They didn't ask the Nothing. question. <laughs> it was, it was uh, about two years later, and I had gone to Birmingham by myself for a visit, and we were sitting one night in the den, and my mother turned to me, and she, my mom said, um, Lawrence is more than a friend. 
And I said, yes, Lawrence is more than a friend. And my mother sat there asking questions, and my father got up from his chair and went into the bedroom. And we didn't speak again for about three years. And then I, I later came to know um, that I had been taken out of the will. Um, gratefully, very shortly before he died, he relented and put me back in the will. But it, it was, um, it just rips at your soul as a son to have your father not wanting to see and affirm who you are. And my, the relationship with my mother, uh, she went a long way in the journey with me until she came under the influence of a TV personality in, in uh, the United States. And then she began to, to call me up late at night and have these conversations with me like, you do believe in the Pope, right? Yes, yes, Mom. Well, you know that you, you can't be gay or you're going to go to hell. And actually, it was the very last conversation I had with her before she died. Um, but the, the thing that, was, that helped me was knowing that she was only saying that because of her love. I didn't agree with that, and I have a lot of feeling about the TV personality who was spouting that sort of but that was not my that was not my best mom it was my mom who was really concerned out of love for me and I really hate that she died with that anxiety how long ago was that 20 years 20 years ago That is a that is a story right there. That is a story. And from there, you... Well, I mean, so for a long time, I, I was working for the Roman Catholic Church. Um, I never worked for any uh, person where my pastor, priest, uh, uh, the person who hired me, um, they all had to know that I was gay. So I was never hired under any false pretenses. Oh, Rob, there, there are so many stories. Um, very and, and painful, hurtful stories. Uh, I lost a number of jobs. Uh, I mean, I, I lost a job working for the Arch... I was working under the Archdiocese of Seattle and uh, someone went into the bishop and made a false accusation against me. No grounds for it whatsoever. No proof ever given. And uh, the bishop called me in and said, look, this accusation has been made, and I just think it would be best if you, if you left. Um, and so I, I, it, um, 
I came to this point where I realized that for my own integrity and and for my own ability to take care of myself, I needed to go get a doctorate. And that's when I started my doctorate in clinical psych, because I still intended to work for the church, but I knew that there was going to come a day when I would be dismissible. And all of this that has come your way, those of us who know you and people who go with you and hike, you know, and read your books, you're like this fountain of love and grace and calm and this expansive embrace. Uh, It's interesting hearing you tell those stories in that order that when you were really young and your grandmother said, no hate, no hate, no hate, and something within you it's like, I want to learn how to become that kind of person. The only way for you to have learned to become that kind of person would be to have things come at you that would teach you how to become that kind of person. And so you've become that kind of person. I pray so. I mean, it was all there when you were seven. The question you were asking when you're I seven so. turned out so. to be the question that you have spent your life pursuing yeah amazing just amazing um what and i really feel as if i have lived i have upheld the family lineage um i have become alexander the priest not in a way that others might say you fit this box but that's been my work yes yeah, you were actually true to it. So what do you and say to somebody listening who's... They have something deep in their bones that is who they know they are. And their family, tribe, neighborhood, workspace, community would not does not know what to do with that. That's looked down upon, that's judged, that's illegal, whatever. I mean, what, you know what I mean? That has legal, whatever it is. Um, do you, what do you say to them? Because I'm sure people say this to you all, ask these sorts of questions all the time. Each of us today in my mind is obligated to live our authenticity. And if we do, as, as our spirituality says, as, as Jung writes about, when we truly live our authenticity, doors will open where other people see walls. Miracles will take place. Resources will show up that we never imagined could come our way. There is sort of magic and mystery in the cosmos, but it all is dependent upon us living the person that spirit intends us to be. And when that has to be lived in the face of others' criticism, it's painful, I know. And we need to do it, and everything will be okay. In fact, everything will be more than okay. It'll be great. We ha- we should stop right there. Yeah. That's perfect. Thank you so much for coming by the back house again. The My book name. is Heart and Mind, Alexander Shia. You can find him on a website or something. Quadratus. Quadratus. 
Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-O-S. We'll blow you away. Thank you so much. You, you are a priest for so many of us. It's beautiful. Thank you. Grace and peace, friends.